Our call to worship is found in Psalms 103, 1 through 5. Now, uh, by um, Pew Bibles, uh, page 556, and it reads, Praise the Lord my soul, all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that, the, your, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. New Testament reading is 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 12, and this can be found in your pew Bibles, 1067. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this is all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Christ, of the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. For we who are alive and, and are always being given over to death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. The gospel reading this morning is uh, Matthew chapter 25, verse 34. Then the king will say to you, to those on his right, come, you who, uh, who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance the kingdom of the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Lucy and Linus and Charlie Brown are lying on the hillside looking up at the clouds. And Lucy says, aren't the clouds beautiful? They look like big balls of cotton. I could just lie here all day and watch them drift by. If you use your imagination, you can see lots of things on the cloud formations. What do you think you see, Linus? And Linus says, well, those clouds up there look like a map of British Honduras on the Caribbean. And that cloud over there looks like a profile of Thomas Eakins, the famous painter and sculptor. And that group of clouds over there gives me the impression of the stoning of Stephen. And I can see the Apostle Paul standing there to one side. Oh, that's very good, Lucy says. What do you see in the clouds, Charlie Brown? Charlie Brown says, well, I was going to say I saw a ducky and a horsey, but I changed my mind. So when I read in the bulletin this morning that uh, Pastor Greg preached on this, this uh, chapter, Genesis 32, a couple of weeks ago, I thought, well, I'm Charlie Brown to his Linus. So uh, you're going to hear about the ducky and the horsey today. The chapter we are going to look at is chapter 32 of Genesis. And it's an important chapter because it's all about blessing. Now, Abraham... His story is a story of promise. He was promised that he and his family would become a great nation, a great people, that his children would be greater than all the, the sand of the earth even. It was an extraordinary promise. Jacob never got a promise like that. He grew up hearing that promise. He kind of lived in the shadow of that promise. He lived constantly thinking about what that meant and how he factored into it. But he, his life was not a story of, of promise. Jacob's story is really the story of blessing. 
And the blessing starts, well, it really is contained in two chapters in his life, one towards the beginning of his adult life and one towards the end of his adult life. And we're all very familiar with the first chapter because it has to do with him cheating his brother out of his birthright. Now, you remember, perhaps, that when Esau, his, his twin brother, and Jacob were born, Jacob, who was the younger, perhaps the littler of the two, grabbed his, his brother's uh, ankle and pulled on it as if he wanted to be the one that came, would be born first. That amused the midwife and his mother, although I'm not sure how, in a situation like that, anybody could be very amused. But nonetheless, it said that that amused them, and so they gave him a name based on that behavior. His first act was to try and beat his brother out of something else. So even though Esau was the firstborn, Jacob wanted to be. And they gave him the name Jacob, which means supplanter. We don't use that word supplanter anymore very much. We do use another word that is a synonym for supplanter, cheater. So Jacob grew up with the name cheater. He was a little cheater, and he got to be a much bigger cheater. When he went to school, he was cheater. Can you imagine sitting in first grade and they're calling out the names of the kids, Aaron, Bartholomew, cheater, and he had to raise his hand, and he lived up to the expectation of being a cheater. And so uh, the, the, the most famous story, perhaps, of, uh, in his early life is how when it came time for his father to bestow the birthright, which was the legal way of transferring, transferring uh, all of the father's uh, power and authority and his name and everything that made the father the father, to the oldest son, Jacob found out about that, and he tricked his father. He put jalapenos in the beans, and he, he, he cooked it up just the way his father liked it. And he cheated, true to form, his, father, his brother, and he cheated his father, and frankly, he cheated himself, because the result of that behavior was that he, he was cast out of his father's house. He had to run away, separated from his mother, who loved him and who was in, in, involved in this whole subterfuge, and... Uh, he was on his own. He went far away to a man named Laban's house, started working for him, and um, fell in love with one of his daughters and made an agreement to uh, marry her. And then uh, the morning after the wedding night, he discovered that he'd been tricked. He'd been cheated into marrying the wrong sister. And so he stayed by and uh, worked another seven years to marry the second sister. Um, and during that time, like I said, Jacob's story is about blessing. All this time, God's blessing him. Um, even though he was a cheater, it didn't seem to matter. God's intent for him was to bless him. In fact, in Malachi 1, it says, God loved Jacob. Now, that's written many centuries after this story comes along. But uh, by the time that, that the story was being told by Malachi, they could see that God just loved him. Nobody could figure out why his name was a cheater, and he was a cheater, but God loved Jacob. He became a wealthy, a shrewd man. He had two wives, one too many, it seems like, but two wives nonetheless, 11 sons, more cattle than you can count. And his life, it didn't matter who he cheated, he still made money. Uh, he made enemies as, ma- as fast as he made friends. He spent his entire life estranged from his brother, estranged from his family, and eventually became estranged from his father-in-law, who he cheated uh, repeatedly out of possessions. And so eventually he turned his attention towards going home. And he knew to go home he had to confront Esau, his brother, who he'd cheated so many years before. 
That became the fulcrum of the second story and the formative story of his life. And that's where we pick up the story in uh, Genesis chapter 32, which if I can figure this out. Genesis chapter 32 starts with Jacob going home to meet uh, Esau. It says, Jacob also went on his way, and the angels of God met him, verse 1. Now, I don't know about you. I travel quite a bit, and I have yet to encounter the angels of God. I encounter a lot of other people uh, in line in front of me, in line behind me, sitting in the seat behind me, kicking. Uh, I can th- I, I, they're angels, but not of God. And, um, you know, you encounter people that are much more like Jacob on the cheater side than the uh, angel side. But nonetheless, what it says is that Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God came out to meet him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God. So he named the, that place Mahanaim, I think. Mahanaim. Mahanaim. I can't say it. Thank you. Thank you. Which really means two camps. So he said, this place is not just my camp, all my possessions, all my kids, my two wives, everything that I've accumulated, but it's also God's camp. The angel camp is here. This is a place of two camps. He recognized that he was living in blessing. He was a very, very lucky man. Uh, maybe luck's not the right word, blessed. But he was still on his way to meet his brother Esau, and he was fearful of it. So he had a scheme. He had, a, he had an angle. He had a way to do it. Verse 3, Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau, and he instructed them, verse 4, this is what you are to say. He gave them very careful instructions. He didn't trust them even to carry out his what he wanted them to do. This is what you are to say to my brother, to my master Esau. Say, your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban. Staying being a euphemism for I've been cheating Laban these last 20 years. And I have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, men servants and maidservants. Now I'm sending this message to my Lord that I may find favor in your eyes. So they went. He said, let him know that I'm not, I'm not just this little pipsqueak little brother anymore. I've got riches. I've got experience. I've been a shrewd business guy. I've got wives. I've got kids. When the messengers returned to Jacob, verse 6, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. No, no domestic uh, tranquility in this line. It's not like, well, I'm bringing my wife and family for dinner. No, he's coming with an army, dude. That's what he told us to tell you. What do you think this did to poor Jacob, the cheater? It, it set into motion every bit of his scheming mind. And in verse 7, it says, In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups. Now remember, what was the name of the place? Where, where was he staying already? Two camps. Because he was in one camp and there was already a camp of God. That's not enough for Jacob. He has to make up his own two camps. He has to devise his own solution. He doesn't actually believe or have faith that God has sent those angels for some purpose. He is, he's going to do it himself. He makes two camps. Doesn't this sound familiar? Maybe not to you, but it certainly sounds like to me. That just when I know or should know that God has taken care of me, I still have to take care of myself. I still have to figure out a way to, to do it my own way. I still have to have an angle. I still want to count the odds. I still want to figure out if I've, if I've counted all the votes in the room, if I've you know, 
got to the front of the line, if I've worked out the best deal for myself, if I've really thought through what's the best thing for me. That's what Jacob did. He divided the group into two camps. And he put one wife in one camp and one wife in the other camp. It got very quiet after that. And um, he put his kids in two camps. He put his, lion, his lions and his tigers and his bears and his possessions and his cattle in two camps. He divided it all up because he thought if Esau attacks one camp, then the other camp will succeed. And I'm still going to end up with at least something out of this deal. I'm not going to just sit here and wait for him to meet me. If Esau comes and attacks one group, verse 8, that group, the group that is left may escape. Then he prayed. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, the one of the promise, God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I have only my staff when I cross this Jordan, but now I have become two groups. So there's a little mixed message in here, too. Yeah, I was, all I had when, when you sent me out was my staff. Look how good I've done. I've, I've done really well for myself. I've, I've prospered, and I know you blessed me, but it's like the two farmers looking at the garden, and the one farmer says, boy, the Lord is really blessing you with this garden. And the second farmer says, yeah, you should have seen it when he was working it by himself. You know, he wanted to remind God that he was a, he was a big piece of this victory, that these, that this, all these extra people and all this extra, uh, property and all this cattle was because he'd been doing his part. He'd, he'd held up his end of the bargain. I've even divided him into two camps. I only had my staff when I came, but now I've become two groups. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. So God, if that's the promise you made to Abraham, and you made that promise to Abraham, how can you let my family be destroyed? Because I'm the only real answer to that whole thing. And uh, I'm just going to hold you to it now. I've done everything I can. I've held up my end of the bargain. I always go to church. You know, I always give money to Hope for Humanity. I always am nice to the people in front of me. I always pay my taxes eventually. I really think this is your time to step up because I've done my bit. And I just want to remind you, save me, I pray, because uh, you promised you would. It's transactional. It's not relational. And that perhaps is the most important thing. It's completely transactional. Poor Jacob has, has lived his entire life bereft of real relationships. The, the woman that he loved, he finally, when he finally is able to marry her, he's got an entire another family that that he has to deal with, and then he has to deal with two women under the same roof constantly. I can't even imagine what that would be like. I don't want to imagine what it would be like. He's, he, he's all about the transaction with his, his father-in-law. He's all about the transaction with his brother. For him, if he can just be his, make his way through the equation, get to the bottom of the page, pass the bottom line, then perhaps he'll, he'll survive. He spent the night there, verse 13, and from what I had, he selected a gift for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 female donkeys, uh, camels with their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself, and said to his servants, go ahead and keep some space between the herds. 
So he's trying to bribe him with the 12 days of Christmas. He instructed the one in the lead, When my brother Esau meets you and asks, To whom do you belong, and where are you going, and who owns all these animals in front of you, then you are to say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift to send to my lord Esau, and he is coming behind us. He also instructed the second, the third, and all the others who follow the herds. You are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And be sure to say, Your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him. I'm going to figure out my own transaction here. I'm going to calm him down. I'm going to bribe him. Whatever it takes to save my skin. I will pacify him with these gifts I'm sending on ahead. Later when I see him, perhaps he will receive me without killing me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him, but he himself spent the night in the camp. Pretty sad. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two married servants, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok, the little creek there. And after he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So even after he sent the gifts, he's still hedging his bets. He pulls his family back, then he sends all his possessions ahead, and the last thing he does is he sends his wife's wives and, and kids ahead. And here comes what I think are the five saddest words the five saddest words in this whole chapter. So Jacob was left alone. It's a terrible thing to come to a point in your life where nothing matters, where you don't have anyone, you don't have anything. You're bereft of any kind of meaning. Your family is, your relationships with your family are driven by transactions which have failed you, which you've failed, which you've cheated, which you've gamed, which you've tried to control. Your relationship with your brother and your, your mother and your, your father and all the people that, that make up your heritage and where you came from have been spoiled by your complete focus on, on your name, cheater, the supplanter man. He came to this place where he says, and he was left alone. Nothing, none of that mattered. None of that mattered. At least that's what he thought. And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. Now, we always say that Jacob wrestled with the angel or with God. But that's not actually what the scripture says. What's it say? It doesn't say that Jacob wrestled with the man. It says that a man wrestled with Jacob. It says, in fact, that Jacob was alone. He was done with it. He, was un- he wasn't expecting this. He had no defense against this. He had no plan. There was no uh, golden parachute to get him out of a wrestler in the bush. It never occurred to him that this was going to happen. It wasn't on his list. He didn't get trained for this. No one warned him about it. You can't look it up on the Internet. There's no way to prepare for it. And it doesn't say that he was ready for it. He didn't anticipate it. It was the last thing that he thought would happen. And he didn't engage the man. It was the man who engaged him. And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. Now, Ellen White says that the man was the pre-incarnational Christ. I have a very hard time understanding what that means exactly. How God can in pre-incarnate, I mean, it doesn't, I mean, this doesn't compute. But nonetheless, Jacob himself affirms that he wasn't wrestling with an angel, as we often say. At the end of this chapter, he says, I fought with God and I survived. So Jacob sees this man wrestling with him as God. So God himself leaps out of the bush and starts to wrestle with Jacob. And he wrestles with him. He won't let him go all night. Jacob tries to get away. He's yelling. He's screaming. He's bribing. He's cajoling. He's threatening. He's trying to get other people's attention. But he's sent all that ahead of him. It's all, it's, it's all gone. It's just him out there. 
And all night long, he starts to deal with the things which have made his life so alone. He starts to deal with his own treachery and his own trickery and his own guilt. He starts to wonder about his own self-sufficiency, that everything that he's done to plan for this moment didn't, didn't prepare him for this. That, that all that he's done to prepare a meeting, Esau doesn't make a difference because he's never going to get out of this thing alive. And the night wears on, and every bit of his energy is expended trying to get away. And uh, just as it says in the New Testament that the prodigal son came to himself, at some point, along towards dawn, Jacob began to realize who it was that he was fighting with. And instead of wrestling with the angel, he started holding on. And it's so, so wonderful what he says. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that the hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. The man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. The light is almost dawned. You know, darkness in the scripture is a metaphor for things that are hidden and not understood. And light is always a uh, metaphor for the things which are understood and disclosed. And when it says that darkness, that when it says it's almost daybreak, I don't think that's just a reference to the weather or to the meteorology. I think that's a reference to daybreak in Jacob's own life. He's almost got it. He's almost figured it out. And Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Not a promise, not a contract, not a transaction. I've finally come, he says, to the point where I recognize what my life's about. And it's not about promise. It's not about trickery. It's not about cheating. It's about blessing. Blessing is a very powerful thing. When we bless, what do we do? We give up control. We, we turn it over. We, we accept it. We, we, we embrace the future. When we bless someone, as the scriptures that we read this morning, they're all, they're all themed around blessing. When blessing comes to us, it comes to us without strings. If it, if it has a string, it's not a blessing. It's, it's a contract. It's transactional. He says, I won't let you go unless you bless me. And then the man says, what is your name? And all the darkness starts to wade back in because Jacob doesn't want to say, my name is Cheater. My name is Supplanter. He doesn't want the prospect of all those lost years. He's finally come almost to the dawn of a new life, of a real life. And the man says, what is your name? And he says, my name, my name is Jacob. And the man says, that's not your name. That's not what we call you up in heaven. None of us call you by that name. That's not what's in your DNA. They got your name mixed up at the hospital. You know, your mother might call your name. That's not your name. Your brother might call you that name. That's not, that's not your name. Your wives may know you by that name, but that's not your name. Your family, your kids might call you that name, but that's not your name. Jacob is confused. He says, what's my name? Then the man said, your name will no longer be Cheater supplanter but prince Israel because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome what is it that Jacob overcame he didn't overcome the man that struggled with him what he, came, what he overcame was his cheaterness his trickiness his supplanterness his self-sufficientness his belief that he could do it by himself that he could outfox the, the odds 
that he could divide into two groups, and that would be better than the, the group that was already protecting him. What he overcame was the belief that self-sufficiency, transactional living, was going to take him anywhere. And when that happened, God, who loved him and blessed him, said, your name isn't Cheater. It was never Cheater. Your name is Israel. Your, your name is Prince. You know, Jacob never met Esau. The story doesn't end that way. Israel met Esau. It's a completely different ending to the story. If Jacob had met Esau, we wouldn't even be telling the story today. Who knows what would have happened? It would be a footnote in somebody else's history. But because Israel met Esau, God's promise was fulfilled through him. Amen? I get to catch up with my notes here. Martin Luther King wrote, The problem is with man himself and with man's soul. We haven't learned how to just to be just and honest and kind and true and loving. That's the basis of our problem. The real problem is that through our scientific genius, we've made the world a neighborhood, but through our moral and spiritual genius, we failed to make it a brotherhood. Greg Herrick writes about this uh, just chapter so eloquently. There is someone who knows you and loves you. There is someone who has spoken definitively into our darkness. He knows the games we play, the blind alleys we prefer. Nonetheless, for those who want to listen, Jesus wants to speak. His voice is heard by the humble, those ready to lay down the hammer nails of self-construction or destruction and hear what he has to say. Those who have an axe to grind concerning their own self-goodness, those who have an axe to grind concerning their own self-goodness, will never hear him speak. So go put away your axe if you need to and listen to him. And Jacob is saved and Israel is born. It's easy in this story, and I suppose I spent my whole life imagining myself as Jacob. Jacob running away, Jacob being tricked, Jacob with the ladder reaching into heaven, Jacob outfoxing the other guy, Jacob being smart and clever, Jacob uh, surviving. It's easy for us to imagine ourselves in the role of Jacob, because we all know what it means to have been cheaters and saved, or at least I think that's what brings us together. But I believe that this story... uh, is not about us being Jacob. Uh, We are not only Jacob in the story, but we're somebody else as well. Jacob wrestled with someone who loved him. And I believe that this story is actually an opportunity for us to not just be Jacobs, which we already have experienced being Jacobs, in both in our cheater role and in our Israel role, most of us, but it's actually a call for us to be the angel, God himself, his ambassadors. In this story, we can also take the other role. God calls us to wrestle with those people who need his blessing. Now, one of the odd things about the word that's used in the, the Old Testament for wrestle is that it, can, it also has an alternative meaning. And the alternative meaning is embracing. So you can read the text that Jacob wrestled with the angel, But you could also read the text that Jacob was embraced by the angel and that the angel would not let him go. I like what that means. I like the idea that God calls us to be wrestler embracers. God calls us to be the people that embrace and wrestle with the world, wrestle with the darkness, wrestle with what's wrong with the world, 
until it's done. Malin told stories about people who, in some small way, have decided that they are going to be wrestler embracers. They're not going to accept illiteracy as a standard. And so they take their time, and they open up their homes, and they, they do what they can, simple people with just not much education, making a huge difference. Of course, we have to wrestle through the darkness through the night. But the church comes to the world in its darkest moment. It comes to the world in the night of despair. The world doesn't need to hear that it's rotten. It knows that already. The world doesn't need to hear from the church that, we're, that they're cheaters. If that's the only message that the, the, the church has for the world, we're, we're going to have to stand in line to deliver that message. That's not the message that God calls us to deliver. The message that God calls us to deliver to the world is what? One of blessing, one of acceptance, one of the fact that it doesn't matter that you're cheaters. You're still saved by grace. That's what we get to be. We get to be the angel, wrestlers, embracers. Now, doesn't that feel better? Doesn't that feel a better way to engage with the world than one that's bringing condemnation and anger and disappointment and and pointing out failure? Let somebody else do that. We're the people that bring what? Salvation, blessing, hope, acceptance. We're the wrestler embracers. What a powerful idea for people like you and me who, who are enthused by faith, who, have been, who ourselves have been Jacobs, who ourselves have been cheaters and have been cheated and have seen the worst of the world. What would happen if we took this other role seriously? And instead of seeing ourselves as wrestling with evil, We literally embrace it out of existence. We change it by our own love and our own own passion and our own persistence that this is a message that the world will die without. Isn't that our calling? Isn't that what God calls us to be? Not wrestlers in the traditional sense, but wrestlers in the God sense. When God came to wrestle Jacob, he couldn't hate him. He had to love him. And that's what he calls us to. We are the purveyors, the carriers, the DNA in the world, not of promise, but of blessing. Jacob never met Esau. Israel did. And if you want to read a great story, read Genesis 33. Ellen White says, Our confession of his faithfulness is heaven's chosen agency for revealing Christ to the world. Our confession of his faithfulness, is the chosen way by which Christ is revealed to the world. We are to acknowledge his grace as made known through the holy men of old, but that which will be most effectual is a testimony of our own experience, nothing else. We are witnesses for God as we reveal in ourselves the working of a power that is divine. Every individual has a life distinct from all others and an experience differing essentially from theirs. God desires that our praise shall ascend to him marked by our own individuality. These precious acknowledgments, that's acknowledgments of our own lives and how we've been transformed, to the praise of the glory of his grace when supported by a Christ-like life, and here's the best part, have an irresistible power that works for the salvation of souls. We become as irresistible as the angel that wrestled with Jacob. We become the agents of blessing. Henry Nouwen writes, To give someone a blessing is the most significant affirmation we can offer. 
It is more than a word of praise or appreciation. It's more than pointing out someone's talents or good deeds. To give a blessing is affirmed, to say yes to a person's belovedness. Jacob was loved by God, saved by God, from being a cheater to being a prince. That's exactly the calling that he gives us today. Amen. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Jesus. Amen.